Numbers chapter 27, verse 12 through 23. The Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Evarim and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people, as your brother Aaron was, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin, when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Merivah and Kadish in the wilderness of Zin. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Elazar, the priest, and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Elazar, the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation. And he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. The word of the Lord. Finishing um, our series on the book of Numbers this morning. And there's something uh, we need to talk about. We've never talked about why it's called the book of Numbers. And we need to, although very few people actually talk about it because it is one of the most challenging things in the whole Bible. The reason this book is called Numbers is because twice... Once at the beginning and once at the end, God commands Israel to take a census of the people for war. Uh, Remember, this whole story is all about how God is leading Israel through the wilderness to the land of Canaan. It's the promised land. Yay! But what's supposed to happen when they get there? It's called the conquest of Canaan. And it's all about how God is commanding the Israelites to utterly and completely wipe out the inhabitants of the land. What do we do with that? What does that say about God? What does that say about the Bible? What does that say to those of us who might put our trust in this God? And what does it say to those of you who might be considering the claims of Christianity? Well, a lot of people say different things about it. But for example, Richard Dawkins is a famous scientist and atheist who wrote a book some years ago called The God Delusion. In the book, he says this, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. Um, He goes on and on. Bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Tell us what you really think, Richard. (laughs) 
That phrase, vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, he's referring to the conquest of Canaan. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we have to acknowledge that, at least on the surface, it sounds like he has a point. I mean, what, what do we do with the God who commands his people to utterly wipe out the inhabitants of the land? Many of us would prefer to just ignore it or to dismiss it like, well, that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus and Christianity. But what if it has everything to do with Jesus, just not in the way we think? And what if it really is one of the most um, difficult and challenging parts of the Bible, but not because of what it says about God, but because of what it says about us? And what if um, the challenge on the surface is concealing something wonderful and life-giving deep inside, but we'll never find it unless we're willing to walk straight into the challenge of this topic? Not ignore it, not dismiss it, but delve into it. Would you be willing to explore this with me for just a bit? Let's walk through this passage and see three things. This shows us that we're in a war, but not the one we think. Second, we need a king, but not the one we see. And third, we need a victory, but not the one we expect. We're in a war, but not the one we think. We need a king, but not the one we see. And lastly, we need a victory, but not the one we expect. So, first, we're in a war, but not the one we think. At the very beginning of this passage, um, God reminds Moses that because of Moses' failure to fully obey God, this was back in Numbers 20, that he's not going to get to lead the Israelites into the promised land. He's going to die in the wilderness. And Moses is concerned, like, who's going to lead the Israelites? So he says, let the Lord appoint a man who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. That, when Moses talks about someone to lead them out and bring them in, that's military language. Moses is asking God to raise up a military leader who will lead the Israelites in battle against the Canaanites. And like I said, this poses all kinds of problems for us. I mean, this seems to play into all the most negative pictures of what religion does, that it's all about hatred, violence, intolerance, domination, exclusion, and power. What do we do with this? I don't think it's possible to provide an answer that is going to satisfy every question or erase every problem, but there are factors here that should cause us to question our assumptions and also point us toward other possibilities. So, for instance, first, when you look at the ancient world, when nations did battle, what they would do is they would invade another nation, they would enslave the people and plunder their resources. It was all about enriching and empowering themselves at the expense of another nation. But when you look at what God tells Israel to do, he doesn't tell them to do anything like that. In Deuteronomy 20, God gives them instructions. He says, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. Now, destruction is horrifying, and we'll talk more about that. But at the very least, notice that God is, is telling Israel to do something that nobody else in the ancient world ever did. He's saying, you are not going to plunder. You are not going to enslave. You are not going to colonize or imperialize. This is not about you enriching and empowering yourselves. In other words, whatever is going on here, it's not about colonization or imperialization or ethnic cleansing, despite what Richard Dawkins says. What is going on here? Well, as usual, one of the best ways to get our bearings is to go back to the beginning of the biblical storyline. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates this world to be a place of blessing, a place of wholeness and flourishing and beauty. But then in Genesis 3, sin and evil enter the world. 
Satan, through the serpent, tempts the first human beings to rebel against God. And all of a sudden, the whole fabric of creation starts unraveling. Everything starts falling apart. But God walks right into the midst of that, right into the middle of ground zero, as it were, and, and he talks to the serpent. He says, because you have done this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You know what that word enmity means? God is declaring war. But he's not declaring war against human beings. He's declaring war against the sin, evil, and death that's making war against human beings, that's attacking and destroying them and all of God's creation. It's a cosmic war for cosmic justice. Now, the biblical phrase for this is called the wrath of God, which as modern enlightened people, we bristle when we hear that phrase. We say, oh, I can't believe in a God of wrath, only a God of love. But how loving could God possibly be if he does nothing about evil and injustice in this world. For instance, I just read a book called The Crucifixion by Fleming Rutledge. Fleming Rutledge is a world-renowned preacher and theologian. She puts it brilliantly in the book. She's talking about the wrath of God, and she says this. She says, the wrath of God is not an emotion that flares up from time to time as though God had temper tantrums. It is a way of describing his absolute enmity against all wrong and his coming to set matters right. That's the wrath of God. And I would suggest that as human beings at one level or another, we all long for that. So for instance, in her book, Fleming Rutledge talks about Vince Gilligan. He was the creator of the TV show Breaking Bad, which was all about that high school chemistry teacher who started cooking crystal methamphetamine. Vince Gilligan, the creator of the show, uh, grew up Catholic, but now he's an agnostic. Although, in spite of that, he did an interview on NPR in which he said he still wakes up sometimes at three in the morning wondering, like, what if this is, there's more than just this? If there is no God, then where is someone like Hitler? He's wrestling with this idea of justice. And here's what he says in the interview. We tend to believe that there's some kind of payback. I've got to believe the wheel turns for everybody who does truly horrible deeds. I've got to believe some cosmic wheel of justice turns. Vince Gilligan, this lapsed Catholic agnostic guy, is saying that he has a longing for cosmic justice. Friends, we all do. The conquest of Canaan is an instance of God administering justice through one set of people on another set of human beings that have pushed the boundaries of evil so far that God is saying, time is up. And yes, this is happening at a local historic level. It's not cosmic in the, in, in the, um, in the conquest of Canaan, but it isn't an, an entirely unrepeatable, utterly unique event. It never happens again in the Bible. God never tells anybody ever to do anything like this again in the Bible. And here's the point. The conquest of Canaan is a preview of cosmic justice. God is in the conquest of Canaan. God is doing something at a micro-historic level that one day he will do at a macrocosmic level. It's a picture of that. For friends, we are in a war, but it's just not the one we think. It's not our puny wars against other human beings. It's God's war against the sin, evil, and death that's at war against us. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen that we're in a war, but not the one we think. Secondly, we need a king, but not the one we see. When Moses asks God to raise up a leader for Israel, 
Uh, God says, okay, take Joshua. Now, Joshua, you might remember, was Moses' assistant in the wilderness, and he was also one of only two men that had enough faith to believe in God's promise that he was going to bring them into the land, even though everybody else was terrified. So Joshua, I mean, he's a wonderful guy. He is God's appointed leader for Israel, and yet this passage is full of all kinds of little hints, which are basically God's way of saying, hey, kids, yes, Joshua's great, but don't get too excited. He's not Moses. So for instance, number one, um, God tells Moses to have Joshua stand in front of Eliezer, the priest, and he says this, you shall invest him with some of your authority that all the people of Israel may obey. Notice it says, some of your authority. Um, And all the commentators point this out, that Joshua doesn't have any authority of his own. He gets it from Moses, but he doesn't get all of Moses' authority. He just gets some of it. Next, God says that... um, that Joshua shall stand before Eliezer the priest and shall inquire for him who shall inquire for him before the Lord. In other words, throughout Moses' lifetime, he always spoke directly to the Lord face to face. Moses got all of his directions directly from the mouth of God, and we see that actually happening in this passage. But Joshua has to go through the priest to get to God. He doesn't get directions straight from God's mouth. He has to go through the priest, through someone else, to get his instructions. In other words, as wonderful as Joshua is, he doesn't have the same authority as Moses. He doesn't have the same access to God as Moses. Do you know what this means? Listen, Moses is basically asking God to raise up a king for Israel. When he talks about leading them out and bringing them in and being a shepherd over the people, that language is kingly language. So for instance, in 2 Samuel 5, many years later, the people of Israel all come to King David, the great King David, and they, um, they, um, they come to him and they say that you were the one who led us out and brought us in. You were, you, it was you who led and brought in Israel, and the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. Now, this is kingly language. God is, um, is, is, Moses is asking God to raise up a king for Israel. But here's the point. Every human king ends up letting us down. Every earth, earthly leader just leaves us wanting more. That's one of the main things we're seeing here. Friends, we long for cosmic justice, but no earthly leader can give it to us. No human endeavor can provide it for us. Even Joshua, as wonderful as he is, he's not the ultimate king that Israel needs. And even the great King David, the greatest king of Israel that ever was, he was an adulterer and a murderer. Even he was not the ultimate king that Israel needs. Every earthly ruler ends up letting us down. Every earthly leader. And here's the point, and we long for cosmic justice, but as human beings, we put our hope in a leader. On the one hand, we are wired to put all of our hope in earthly leaders, but on the other hand, every earthly leader just lets us down. We're wired to put our hope in leaders, in a hero, in a champion. So for instance, LeBron James is one of the greatest basketball players who ever lived. Many would argue that he is the GOAT. Um, You may remember some years ago when he went back to play for Cleveland, Nike did a commercial, and it begins with LeBron and his teammates uh, huddled down together on the court right before the game is about to begin. They're about to go into battle. But then 
people from the stands start streaming onto the court, and they start laying their hands on LeBron James. And then people from the lobby start streaming in, and people from outside the stadium start streaming in. And then the whole city of Cleveland starts streaming towards the stadium, laying their hands, wrapping their arms around each other as if the whole city was wrapping their arms around LeBron James. And LeBron says, every single night, every single practice, every single game, we got to give it our all because they're going to ride with us. They're going to ride with us. It's incredibly moving, and it's a phenomenally powerful picture of how we put our hope in champions because when the game begins, who's down on the court playing? LeBron. It's not the fans. It's not the city. It's LeBron James who's walking down on the court and winning the game for them. He's fighting on their behalf. He's their champion so that their victory becomes, his victory becomes their victory. He's their champion. It's not just that he's, he's not just fighting for them, he's fighting as them. So if you think about it, you know, if you have a favorite sports team, if they win a game or a match, why is it that we always say, we did it? We did it? The reason we say that is because we are so identified with our champion that whatever they do, it's as if we're doing it through them. That their victory becomes our victory. Their triumph becomes our triumph. We participate in it through them. They're our champion. They're our representative. Or let me give you another example. Look at politics. Or maybe I should say, look at the baboonery that masquerades as politics. But we put our hope in, in political heroes. I mean, you know, today, we put all of our hope in political heroes. Talk about a longing for cosmic justice. In our culture, nothing embodies that longing more than politics. We are wired to put all of our hope in leaders. But on the other hand, every earthly leader ends up letting us down. Our, social, our sports heroes let us down. Our political heroes let us down. Our celebrities, our online influencers, our thought leaders, our pastors, every earthly leader ends up letting us down. And it's not just um, leaders. Every human endeavor um, ends up letting us down. All of our human endeavors to bring about cosmic justice and make this world the place we long for it to be ends up letting us down. We can never bring it about. And please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that we shouldn't try as hard as we can to, to work as hard as we can on things like science and medicine and technology and politics and better social systems and better economic systems. We should work as hard as we can in these areas to make this world the best place we can. And one of the main reasons is because God created human beings to be stewards of His creation. You know what a steward is? A steward is somebody uh, whose job it is to take care of something that belongs to somebody else. God created us to be stewards of His creation. So we should work as hard as we can to steward God's creation as well as we can. As Martin Luther King Jr. once said, the time is always right to do right. But friends, the, one of the main things this passage is showing us, one of the main things the Bible shows us, is that... Um, there are forces of sin, evil, and death at work in this world that we don't have the power to overcome. And that leads to our last point. We've seen that we're in a war, but not the one we think. We need a king, but not the one we see. But lastly, we need a victory, but not the one we expect. Uh, we have this longing to eradicate evil and injustice from this world, but where's the evil located? 
If uh, those who lean right tend to see the evil located in individuals, those who lean left tend to see it located in systems. But more and more in our society, we tend to see evil located in the other side, whatever the other side is for you. So, in other words, Republicans tend to see evil located in Democrats. Democrats see it located in Republicans. Conservatives see it located in progressives. Progressives see it located in conservatives. And more and more, it's like we are watching our society devolve before our eyes into a never-ending cage match between opposing sides who see evil as being entirely located on the other side. When we see evil like that, what does victory look like? Victory looks like crushing the other side. It's really not all that different from warfare in the ancient world. It's an imperialization project. We want to impose our will on people, get them to do what we think, do what we say, do things the way we want to have them done. It's, It's an imperialization project, and if that doesn't work, then our instinct is to just wipe them out. And I think we are seeing that more and more in our culture today. That's the way we see evil. But when the Bible talks about evil, it says, yes, there are both individuals and systems that are evil. But the reason is because sin, evil, and death is a power. It's a force that holds dominion over us. It's like a power that enslaves us. So, for instance, um, remember back in Genesis 3, when God declares war, who's he talking to? The serpent. He's not declaring war on human beings. He's declaring war on the sin, evil, and death that's making war on human beings. Or if you look at the New Testament, in Romans chapter 6, one of the classic statements in the New Testament on the nature of sin and evil in this world, Paul says this. He says that our old self was crucified so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He said sin is a power that enslaves us. Right after that, he says that, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. That word reign literally is a word that's used of a king exercising power. And right after that, he says, for sin will have no dominion over you. That word dominion literally means to lord it over you. Friends, here's the point. Yes, evil exists in both individuals and systems, but the reason is because sin, evil, and death are powers that hold dominion over us. They enslave us. It's kind of like addiction. And you know, addiction is a power that enslaves people, and yet we still participate in it. We still give ourselves to it. There's real culpability there, but we never say, we never hate addicts. We never try to destroy addicts. We hate the addiction that's destroying the addicts. In the same way, God's goal is not to wipe out evil people, but to wipe out the sin, evil, and death that's wiping them out. Do you understand? Does that make sense? Friends, we need a victory, but it's not the one that we expect. We we need a victory. It's not a victory over evil people. It's a victory over the sin, evil, and death that's at work in our own lives, and that is not a victory that we can win for ourselves. We need a king, a true king, a a king who can really um, set us free. We need a real Joshua. And that is exactly what this passage is pointing us to, that, that there really is only one king that can ultimately set us free. Centuries later, Jesus showed up. And by the way, Jesus' name in Hebrew is Joshua. It's the same name. It means God saves. And at the end of Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is walking throughout the cities and villages of, um, of Judea. And it says this, that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now that phrase, (laughs) you know that's not a coincidence. That's not an accident. It is a direct reference to this passage in Numbers that we're looking at. And it's telling us that Jesus is the king, the true king who came to fight for his people and to win the victory for them. But what kind of victory? You know, everybody wanted Jesus to go to war against the Romans, to defeat the evil Romans who had um, set up their imperial empire in Judea and were oppressing the Israelites. Instead, Jesus was healing diseases, preaching the gospel, casting out demons. Jesus was fighting evil, but it wasn't the evil Romans. Jesus was fighting the sin, evil, and in death that had enslaved not only his fellow Israelites, but also the Romans. And the way he did that was by crushing those powers. Jesus came to crush all sin, evil, and death in this world. But the way he did it was by letting those things crush him. In John chapter 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. When Jesus laid down his life on the cross, he was putting all evil, sin, and death to death by letting it put him to death. Friends, um, we could put it like this. One of my favorite preachers uh, was a man named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he describes this battle scene where Jesus is approaching the ultimate enemies of sin, evil, and death. And you can almost imagine Jesus rolling up his sleeves as he's going to the cross to face this enemy. But the way Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it is like this, that, that the Son of God approached the sword, the sword of sin, evil, and death, and the sword smote him, and the sword killed him. It broke his body, but in breaking his body, it broke itself. The sword, the enemies of sin, evil, and death broke Jesus, but in breaking him, it broke itself, so that now sin, evil, and death are defeated powers. And to be sure, obviously, we still see them wielding tremendous power in this world, but, but they're, they're defeated powers broken powers for everybody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to set you free from the things that enslave you. Are there things that enslave you? Are there things that imperialize you in this world? And and if that doesn't work, try to wipe you out. Jesus came to destroy the power of those things in your life. Will you let him? And lastly, for all of us, notice that the gospel undermines all of our little imperialistic projects in the world all the ways that we're trying to get people to bend to our will, to impose our will and and our ways on all the people around us. Many of you are reading a, finishing a book this week by Robert Mulholland in your community groups. It's about spiritual formation. And one of his other books, Robert Mulholland um, says this, he says that you can either be in the world for God or in God for the world. What's the difference between those two things? To be in the world for God means that you see yourself as God's representative fighting God's enemies, imposing your little imperialistic projects on the world around you. That doesn't ever go so well. But to be in God for the world is to see Jesus on the cross for you, laying down his life for you. As he's, you're not God's representative in the world. On the cross, Jesus was your representative conquering all the powers of evil, sin, and death in your life so that now you are in Jesus and Jesus is in you so that you can truly join him in his battle 
to fight against all the powers of sin and evil and death in this world, not fighting against evil people, but fighting against the sin, evil, and death that's destroying people and that Jesus died on the cross to destroy completely. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you this morning that you are a God who is waging cosmic war against cosmic injustice. We thank you that you are not ever content to see this world devolve and deteriorate. You will never let it be. You will never let us go. Father, you are committed to renewing this world and rescuing this world from all the sin, evil, and death that is at war in this world. Father, we thank you for that, and we pray this morning that you would help us to more and more see Jesus on the cross as our representative. And Father, that um, seeing Jesus as our representative on the cross, that we would be able to more and more um, be able to um, embrace the, the power Uh, of Jesus in our life, that we would be set free more and more from the power of sin, evil, and death in our own lives. Lord, help us also, I pray, to give up our imperialization projects in this world. Lord, we know that doesn't mean that we don't fight against evil and injustice in this world. It doesn't mean that that we, um, that we retreat from the world, that we retreat from, from doing our best to serve you in this world, but it does mean that we leave all things into your hand and that we know and trust that you are going to defeat all evil in this world at the end of time. Lord, we thank you for your cosmic justice, and we pray that you will help us to join you in your battle, not against evil people, but against evil, sin, and death in this world. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, we're going to receive our offering at this time. We don't pass a basket. Uh, There is a basket in the hallway if you want to drop something off there. Most people find it easiest and uh, most secure to simply give online. You can go to our website. There's a give page there. But we do um, encourage you, if you're a member or regular attender at the church, to um, participate with us in our vision as a church, which is to see a city made new by the gospel, spiritually, socially, and culturally. Uh, However, if you are new or visiting, we want to invite you, please, to remain our guest and our visitor and not feel any obligation to participate financially with us. But for all of us, um, I want to invite you into a time as as we approach this time to um, have our our hearts and our souls and our spirits shaped more and more in the true spirit of giving. Remember, we are stewards in this world. A steward takes care of something that belongs to somebody else. So our financial stewardship in this world on God's behalf is a, is a spiritual discipline that God uses in our lives, uh, not just something that He wants from us, but something that He wants for us and for the world, that we would be in God for the world. And so I invite you now to join me in a prayer, a liturgy of giving as we approach this time and our musicians will come and play. But let's pray together now. I'll lead and then there's some responses for you. internet. You got to love technology. No, well, tell you what, how about we do this? I'm just going to pray for us. I'm going to invite you to pray with me as we pray for our offering, and then our musicians are going to play. Father, we thank you for these gifts and these offerings. Lord, we recognize that every good gift comes from you, the Father of lights. We know that there is nothing we have in this world that is ours, that all things belong to you, and we are simply stewards 
of your good gifts in this world. We pray this morning that you would create in us an ever greater um, generosity, an ever greater charity, an ever greater gratitude, Lord, that the more we grow in gratitude, the more we would grow in generosity, seeing all things is from you, for you, through you, and unto you. Lord, ex- accept and receive these gifts now, we pray. And Father, I pray that you would use them, that many other people would um, have their lives changed in meaningful ways as a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, for the, for the good of this city, for the advancement of your gospel, and for the um, Uh, and for the forward march of your kingdom in this world. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.